This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It is September the 30th. My name is John Dunn. I'd like to thank you for listening, sharing the podcast. The more the merrier, as they say. Now, if you want to send us an email, you can do that. The address, podcast at bestfriends.org. Questions, comments, concerns, ideas for topics or for guests. What keeps you listening to the podcast? Let us know. The email podcast at bestfriends.org. Now, I'd like to start this episode with a quick game of Did You Know? Did you know 67 million people speak a language other than English at home in the United States? 67 million people. In fact, the number of people speaking languages other than English at home has tripled in the last 40 years. It's hundreds of languages. The number one non-English language spoken in the United States, yes, it is Spanish, and it is spoken by more than 40 million people in the country. And as generations take root, the number of bilingual Americans is growing, and the country overall is growing in its diversity. Your last did you know for this episode? Did you know that one in four members of Gen Z is Hispanic? And I don't need to ask you if you know this, because I know you do, but it's always worth repeating. The human-animal bond is not limited by race, class, or age. People love pets, and pets love people. So in our quest to save as many lives as we can, and to do everything we can to keep pets with their people, doing outreach into new-to-us communities is crucial. Which is why I was very excited to chat with Mia Nevado-Williams the Manager of Multicultural Marketing and Public Relations for Best Friends. Mia, thanks for chatting. You know, I don't know if you saw this yet or not, but I was just looking at this APPA study. John Davis, our, our colleague, John Davis, works in business intelligence here at Best Friends. He just posted an analysis of the latest APPA study, the big study the pet products industry does every two years. There were some interesting things in there about race and demographics, you know, as it relates to pets and people fostering, for example, a much higher rate amongst Hispanic pet owners who responded to the study, 19% versus 6% for white pet owners. I just happened to see this and I thought, hey, we're going to be talking to me today. Maybe we should talk about that because I know that you and I, we've talked before about fostering and that term and you know what it implies, what it means to different cultures. Well, here's the thing with that, John, that I was, it's funny that you mention it because this morning, that's the first thing that I got on Teams is to talk to John Davis about that study because I was like going through it. And the first question I asked, okay, so this study was done in English to people that identified as Hispanic. So it only gives us insight into the bicultural kind of English speaking Hispanic, right? So that's where our conversation about fostering kind of changes. So you have these Hispanics or Latinas that are younger, that are living and breathing English media and behaving very similarly to the general market. And those are the Latinas that are captured in this study. Well, it's still interesting, I would argue for sure. I mean, you know, that first, second generation 
uh, may not represent the entire Hispanic Latinx community. And and by the way, I want to make sure we talk about those terms and what we should be using. What are the differences? But just back to that, you know, one in five members of the English speaking Hispanic community fostering pretty significant, I think. I think it is significant in that I honestly didn't expect it to be higher, not that much higher. I expected it to be on par, maybe a little bit. So the the number did surprise me. And that's when I asked the question about who is actually doing this, you know, who is actually doing this survey. I had a conversation with someone last week and it was actually one of our, I think it was one of our former adopters, but the, the point being that we talked about the fact that growing up, we, we were the ones that were saying, oh, I really want a puppy. Oh, I re-. And our parents were like, no, they're, they're, they're street dogs. They're, they belong outdoors. And I think, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, we have to remember that our parents were in survival mode. They were trying to feed us, trying to make sure we had a place. It, it's, it's completely different, right? We didn't have those worries. So we could focus on, oh, I really want this puppy. So we really have this, you know, love for pets, but just weren't allowed to really have that relationship until we got much older and could be responsible for that pet. So it it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of Hispanics that want to bring pets into their home. It surprised me about the fostering because I think my assumption always was that, um, and I think it still is, that there just isn't enough information being given to the Spanish dominant Hispanic about what fostering is and what it entails. Well, I want to ask something that's kind of basic, if that's okay. I, I alluded to it earlier, which is just the preferred nomenclature. You know, we're talking about a very, very diverse group of people when we say Hispanic. And that for a lot of people is going to be, I think, the term they're more familiar with. Latino is something we hear often. Latinx is something that seems to be something I'm hearing more and more. And I just heard you say Latine. So for me, anyone else who wants to make sure they're saying the right thing, what should we be using? You know, I definitely level set anytime I'm giving a presentation that you're about to see all different terms because they're used by everyone differently, right? So Hispanic is traditionally the one that we use most often and still probably the most popular. You know, it was created by the government. It does exclude some countries like uh, Brazil. But I think as a group, we have just because the, you know, that's kind of how the government term came about. We've always included our Brazilian brothers and sisters into that group. And Latino came about really to focus more on the Latin American countries. So that's where you have Latino, Latina, because everything in the Spanish language is either feminine or masculine, which brings us to our, you know, our day and age right now, where you see a lot of Latinx and what you probably haven't seen a lot of is Latine. And Latine is a is what I prefer primarily because Latinx, I think, is 
more, when I think of Latinx, I think of the very young bicultural Latina person that wants to be inclusive, wants to be non-binary, or wants to make sure that everyone is included. And I think that's great. What I don't think works well for me with Latinx is that it is it tends to exclude our older generation, which is something that, you know, I feel very close to. I think as a whole, as a community, our elders are very important. You know, when you think about our language, we have two and we have usted. We have a specific language for people that are older, that deserve respect for conversations that deserve respect. And so Latinx to me just doesn't seem to be inclusive of that. What I like about Latine is that I'm able to say it in my language, right? Latine. It just kind of flows to me. Whereas Latinx feels very American English, you know, like it's kind of a term that everybody uses because it's easy to say. The news will say Latinx. Many companies will say Latinx. You know, even Unidos US will say Latinx because that's the way everybody's referring to, you know, to the the group as a whole without pinpointing the male or female. But Latine feels good to me. It feels that it does the job of being inclusive to all, yet honoring the language aspect um, of being able to say Latino. You know, my parents, if you say, oh, do you consider yourself Latinx? They're like, what? Like, you know, they see it written and they're like, how do you say that? Is that Latin? So I'm all about use whatever you want. And I don't think it's about offending. I don't really think you're going to offend no matter what term you use. Always, you know, ask if you feel like you're you're not in a safe space and, you know, you might want to do that is ask the person, which term should I use? Well, if I've learned anything this far that, you know, if you're kind and respectful and inquisitive in, in, for the right reasons, you can't really go wrong. How about that? Groundbreaking advice here on the Best Friends podcast. Just be nice. I agree. And I remember... When- when we first um, talked about this, I remember you asking me, you know, why, why do you choose Latina over Latinx? And it was like, it was a great conversation. And I loved, you know, that you just, you know, you approached it, we talked it through. And, you know, you found actually a great, a great explanation online, which I hadn't seen before. Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I loved your approach. It was really friendly and open. It's just, you know, question, just curiosity, which one should I use and does it matter? I always like to start interviews allowing people to talk about their backgrounds and tell everybody about themselves. So we kind of jumped ahead there. It's my fault. But before we get too far down the road, I do want to talk about you. So tell me about yourself and your background. Yeah, I probably should start with, you know, when I moved to the States, I was around eight years old, right? So I was living in Puerto Rico and all of my family is there. Both of my parents are from there, their parents and so on. So when I came to the States, I was very lonely. Like, and by the way, I, I didn't have pets. Pets were dogs you saw on the street, cats you saw in your neighborhood. So adoption wasn't a thing. Shelters weren't a thing. And so when I came to the States, I was really feeling lonely and we had, well, I picked up English really quickly. It was still not the same, right? Trying to fit in. And so I asked my parents for a puppy. And 
my parents not really knowing where to go, you know, my dad went to his work and asked someone and ended up buying from a breeder, a little toy poodle. And so he was my first, you know, puppy. And honestly, he was the first puppy for all of us. So we had no knowledge whatsoever. And we really looked to the people at, you know, my dad's workplace to give us information, like, what do we what do we do with a puppy? And someone told my dad, yeah, you have to, you know, go to the vet. So we looked for a vet. And in those days, it was really hard to find somebody that spoke Spanish in St. Louis, Missouri, right? Especially a veterinarian. So we did take our puppy to the vet and he did have, you know, regular care, but spay and neuter wasn't something that we knew about. And so, you know, I grew up with this puppy, went to college, you know, he passed away um, of old age, lived a long life. He lived like to be 16 years old, but I still didn't know about spay and neuter or any of that. And it wasn't until I was out of college in a job settled down and wanted to have my own pet that I learned about spay and neuter because I knew that we had to go to a vet. I obviously speak English. They speak English. They told me about spay and neuter. So we were able, you know, to do that. But it was during that experience that I learned about puppy mills and that I learned that there was such a thing as a rescue world. So as I started getting into my jobs, which I'm mostly corporate. I was not in animal welfare. I've always been in advertising, focusing on multicultural marketing in the corporate arena. So it was really kind of this side interest of figuring out, okay, where, what is a puppy mill? Where, where do these dogs come from? Why are they in danger? Why isn't anyone doing anything about this? And as I, you know, got more into my career, I met someone who was actually um, the CFO of a GE company that was, she was volunteering at Wayside Waves in Kansas City. And she brought me to the shelter. And that was the first time I had actually seen a shelter. And it, it was a very nice facility, but you still see that, oh, wow, there's a lot of dogs here. There's a lot of dogs that need homes. What is happening? And it kind of brought me back to, I think this is, it, it's time that I start doing something on the side to help these dogs. So I partnered with a vet in the in the area and ran her rescue kind of on the side and worked to bring in medical need dogs. That's when I was really opened up to the world of backyard breeding, all of the things that were happening. But again, I think in animal welfare, it wasn't something I could devote my whole life to, you know, I still needed a good paycheck and I was raising two sons and I was a single mom. So it wasn't something still that I could do full time. So, you know, then fast forward to now I moved back to St. Louis from Kansas City. And, you know, this opportunity popped up at Best Friends to bring the best of both worlds, which is my experience in multicultural marketing, which I've been doing for 25 years. And the fact that it would be about pets and really working with, you know, my communities to bring the information, which is what's been missing for, you know, forever, you know, that it's getting that information to them. So I'm, I was really passionate about this job. I was very fortunate to, to get it and to work 
honestly, I feel really fortunate to work with people that want to elevate this work and come to the communities and come in an intentional way, in a cultural way. And, you know, this work is really, I think, going to change the way people really think about our Spanish language community. So I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of Best Friends for really initiating it. Well, this is going to come across as snarky, and I don't mean it to be, but, you know, you said you're very thankful you got the job. I mean, how many people applied? And I don't mean it to be snarky. I was going to sound horrible, probably, but it's really related to what you and I talked about before, you know, before we sat down to do this interview, which is the lack of diversity in animal welfare here at Best Friends also. We are not as diverse as we want to be, as we need to be. And I, I think it's fair to say that the outreach to try to correct that still in the early stages. And we know animal welfare as a whole has done a pretty awful job at working in non-white communities. So, I mean, are there even the same number of applicants of interest for a multicultural marketing position as there are, say, for, you know, other just general marketing roles? Well, here's the thing. I was actually surprised um, that it had taken them so long to find someone. By the time I applied, I had heard that they just couldn't get the the skill set they were looking for. And that surprised me. But I think it's, um, you know, if it was maybe in a corporate, in a city, in Chicago, LA, that those top 10, you know, really diverse cities, I think you would have had more, more applicants. But I think that there... For best friends, number one, I didn't even, I, I had not heard of best friends. I didn't know what best friends was. And if it wasn't for Brent Tolner, who I graduated with at the University of Missouri, I, I would not have known about best friends. And it was actually, you know, he knew that I had been in multicultural marketing since we got out of school. So, you know, he let me know about the opportunity. So I think many of us just don't know about the opportunities that are out there because they don't. They don't get to us for whatever reason. But I don't think that animal welfare is the only industry that lacks diversity. So I think it's one of many that lack diversity and lack the, the maybe, not, maybe not the knowledge, I don't know what it is, but to actively recruit diverse applicants. And I think, of course, that has a lot to do with you know, do you have DE&I? And DE&I is new to Best Friends. And so I think as DE&I continues to get its foundation, as we continue to get more diverse internally, I think we'll be able to use that to externally, you know, have more applicants that are diverse. But it's just, it's, it's an issue in many many companies and many industries. It's people don't take the time to look for diverse talent. And sometimes it's just, you know, let's do what's easiest. Let's do what we've done before. But really, if you were like, now that you have some diversity in, in best friends, if you were to ask any of us, hey, we're looking for this person, guarantee we can find diverse applicants for that position, because we're in tune with you know, our communities and people like us that are out there, you know, looking for jobs. 
So yeah, I mean, once you establish the DE&I, once there's a foundation, I think it becomes um, an easier process. See, I could have said that without it being so rude. I told you, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I believe me, like, I think that what, it did surprise me, you know, when you've been doing this work for 25 years, when you get onto a new job, you kind of assume or think that that company is going to be in a different place, right? That they're already, you're really going to come in and do the work. They they already have the basis and the knowledge for that. So it surprised me that in animal welfare, there wasn't that understanding of what DE&I is, of what multicultural marketing is, how they work together, how they're not the same. So it was interesting for me that I had to really go back kind of in time and do that that information, you know, exposing people to that information. But at the same time, it's refreshing to be able to begin something from the ground up. That's always a big challenge for me. I like those types of, you know, challenges and opportunities. So, you know, I loved it. But yes, it, I was very aware from the get go that there was, I had a blank slate. There was absolutely, you know, there was nothing to fall back on. The overall lack of engagement from animal welfare and communities of color, millions and millions of pet owners, animal lovers, that I have to assume on the whole, don't know a lot about animal welfare. I mean, how aware would you say, again, this is a tough generalization thing, but just an average member of uh, the Hispanic community in terms of animal shelters, you know, wh where is the animal shelter in their community? What is it? What are they there for? Is there any awareness of that? There, There's little to no awareness about animal welfare. There's little to no awareness about parks and rec, right? There are just spaces where we are not invited to. And I think that's when um, we become aware of those spaces, right? So we're aware of engineering, we're aware of many, you know, industries, but it's because they've come out to recruit, they've made themselves known, but we really, you know, there are many spaces where now, you know, people are thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we have never introduced Hispanics to Parks and Rec. We have never introduced Hispanics to animal welfare? How are we going to do outreach? How are we going to continue to populate, you know, our, our open jobs, our careers, if we haven't engaged them? And that's exactly right, because you're talking about a population that makes up 18.5% of the country right now. And depending on where you are, it could be 30, it could be 40. I mean, in some counties and, you know, border towns where you really need shelter staff, you're talking 80% Hispanic and they haven't been engaged in animal welfare. So how are you going to do that work? Um, so, yeah, I, I see that as a big part of my job, not only the advocacy part. I mean, there's the information part, right? Just getting the adoption getting spay and neuter information, letting them know where their local shelter is, what resources are available. But a big part of, you know, the work is also letting them know that there are careers available in animal welfare. There are jobs in animal welfare and there are opportunities, you know, for veterinarians and vet techs and vet assistants. This is such a huge topic, Mia, 
there are so many different ways to talk about it and it's all important, but I think hiring is really so crucial because what is DEI without a diverse staff? You know, how successful can you truly be working in different communities, whether it be race or socioeconomic, if you're not bringing folks to be part of that work? You know, if they're not part of your staff, how successful can you really be? So, yeah, I, I think hiring is such a big part of it. Yeah. And I think, there, you know, we have to take into account that the information isn't getting to us for many reasons, but also that, you know, historically, we have more Hispanic males that don't go on to college. So they're working, you know, right after high school and no one's, you know, approaching them and they're looking for higher paying jobs. They're supporting families. They're supporting, you know, many times their parents, grandparents. And as a group, we're extremely entrepreneurial, just extremely. We are all about, you know, working for ourselves and you know you'll see many construction companies restaurants landscaping companies very entrepreneurial spirit so i think it is going to take a concerted effort to you know bring in hispanics and all people of color to animal welfare but we've got to look at our infrastructure too you know what is the pay there there's issues in every industry don't get me wrong but it's important that if we're recruiting that the shelters and the organizations are prepared to receive them, right? And that the DE&I knowledge is there. Is it there for everybody? Probably not. So I think, I think that's another, another thing too. We just opt for jobs where, um, you know, there's, there's a need for us. There's a want, there's a desire to bring us on board. There are scholarships to bring us on board or to help us with, you know, our education and continuing education. So, you know, we really have to look at our infrastructure as well. Well, it's important to hire people of color, period. Let's be clear about that. But I think it's especially true if you're going to be doing outreach work. You know, if you're going to provide services to folks in your community from different walks of life, different races, different backgrounds. Your staff should mirror that community. You should mirror your constituents. It's the right thing to do, but it's also going to allow you to be so much more successful. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, obviously the, the history, you know, this um, more better than I do, but, you know, it's let's take the stray dogs and cats from the poor neighborhood and get them adopted in the rich neighborhoods versus let's provide resources. Let's ask them how they feel about their pets, uh, you know, and you're right. I don't think you can come into a community of color without someone to get you in the gate, right? You have to come in with someone that they trust with a message that they can get behind. If you just decide, well, I'm going to go in and this is what I'm going to say. This is what I say to every everybody else, this is where they should be because everybody should be in the same, you know, information avenue. You're, you're not going to get, you're not even going to get to the gate, right? Like you're going to be, you're going to be turning around really quickly. And I think that's something that the community understands, but the general market doesn't, isn't quite there as a, as a concept. What do you mean I need somebody to 
you know, go into this community with me. You know, it's like politicians do it all the time, right? They align with someone of color to talk to a community. That's that's how you're able to do it. Yeah. Or those times where, you know, politicians will go in and like absolutely mangle a paragraph in Spanish. And, you know, while I think A for effort is actually a real thing sometimes, you know, it can really come across, particularly, you know, when you want somebody to do something for you, in this case, politicians, you know, it just comes across as so gross, like just pandering at its worst. It's horrible. It, it really is horrible. It's, it's, demeaning it's you know again it goes back to that that term education versus information so many people are like oh i'm gonna go into that community and i'm gonna educate them i was like well what makes you think they're not educated you know um i did a focus group once years ago when i was working for um, a bank client and so i had all of these moms in a room i was talking to them about banking and the financial industry. And I asked them, you know, how much they knew. And one of the the women in the room was like, oh yeah, I, I managed a bank, you know, back in Venezuela. And, and I'm, and I, and, and I, that, that was like a big thing for me because it's like the women in front of me have all different education levels, but overall, a lot of the women have a good education and they got it in the country, their country of origin. So you are just assuming that the person you see on the street, you know, may not have, you know, an education, but they're educated people. So I really dislike the term, I'm going to go to that community and bring them the education, or I'm going to educate them. I really prefer that you say information, because not all of us you know, were educated on spay and neuter. I guarantee that it was information that was presented to us and we saw it, but it had nothing to do with having a college degree or not. So for folks listening that want to do more in communities where English is not the primary language spoken, so me, John Dunn, Grand Rapids, Michigan, we have a large Hispanic community here, but I don't know much more than that. So what do I do? Where do I go? Yeah. Okay. So let's say you are, let's say um, you are from a shelter in, I don't know, in like, okay, Grand Rapids, let's just say that. And you know that there is a community nearby that is Spanish language dominant, then yeah, you don't want to begin by just, hey, everybody on a Saturday, let's just go in and walk that neighborhood. You want to find people either within your shelter that have Spanish language as a background or no Spanish language. You want to find maybe a volunteer. What I try to tell people is that are in shelters or in organizations to not feel overwhelmed is that they need to find just one person, really just one, whether it is through social media, Hispanics are all over social media, Hispanics are also like, you know, ahead of the curve in technology and smartphones. So they are on social media. So reaching out, asking for a volunteer, just one, really get close to that volunteer, have them be your kind of gateway into that community. And then from there, build on that, you know, but utilize that resource and, you know, 
work with them, you know, really closely and, and ask them the questions, but really develop that kind of relationship, even if it's just with one person and you can do some really great outreach without the fear of, am I going to say something wrong? Are they going to understand me? Or looking like you're coming in to take their dog, you know, which is the first thing they're going to think of, like, why are you here? You know, like you've never been here before. So really that that would be one way. Another is if you're not fearful of getting out into the community, find the place where the people gather the most. Is it the library? Is it the church? You know, where where is it? And if they have a, a board, you know, find a way to get a message on that board or talk to one person at the library by the way, many times in the library or the church, that one person is the gatekeeper, is the influencer. And so just making a connection with them can really give you the opportunity to speak to a larger audience. So it's really about finding that community influencer, but it takes work. You know, you can't, you can't just go in there. You can't, I mean, but you wouldn't do that. I would hope in, into just in any community, you would do a little background and see who is there. What is, you know, what is happening there before you step foot, you know, in that community. I do think my instinct would be first to find an influencer, you know, a, a faith-based organization, maybe the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce comes to mind. My wife works for the city of Grand Rapids knowing that we were doing this episode, I was picking her brain and talking to her about what they do, because obviously the municipal, you know, government, they're talking to everybody in the community. So I asked her, you know, who she goes to, who do they work with? And immediately she just went, oh, Raul, 100%. You know, Raul's a marketing guy. He's incredibly involved and connected in the Hispanic community. You know, maybe it's not as simple in, in big metro areas, but certainly in places like Grand Rapids, I think, you know, the Raouls are there if you just ask around. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and I don't think people give that enough of a try. Those are people that are connected. They're in the community and they want to give back. And the reason they joined the chamber isn't necessarily, you know, to build business. It's to build a network and to feel more connected to their community. And they feel a sense of social responsibility. When you're at a Hispanic Chamber event, it's all about connecting. It's all about meeting who else is, you know, looking to connect personally. They might, you know, their audiences might not be, you know, Spanish dominant Hispanics in, in whatever business they're in, but they want to feel connected to other Hispanics in their community. And so that's why they go to these events. And I think that is a great place because you're already going into a place where people want to influence, where people want to help you. Um, and I don't think I see enough, I don't see any, let me just say animal welfare. You know, I, I've been part of the chamber here and I've never seen an animal welfare group really, you know, get involved. So this isn't true for everyone, but so many people will be starting essentially from scratch on this. But again, it's not true across the board, right? We have lots of places in America, communities that are predominantly Hispanic, Texas, California, uh, Florida. I think, I think El Paso, Texas is like 80% Hispanic, if I'm not mistaken. So Communities like El Paso that have great animal services, great municipal shelter, doing lots of multilingual marketing, you know, especially for folks that are new at this, 
is that something you'd recommend, you know, going and taking a look at what El Paso is doing on their website, on social media? Oh, gosh, absolutely. So think about, you know, once we get back into going to conferences in person, but even in the virtual ones, you can find people from shelters wherever you want to find somebody, right? So yes, if you think about, okay, El Paso is predominantly Hispanic. Gosh, how many cities are, you know, Fresno, Riverside, you've got so many choices. If you meet people from those places, ask them, how are you reaching out to the Hispanic community? El Paso is a great example because they do everything bilingual. They can give you guidance on how to do the marketing. They can even show you how they do it. So that is an excellent way to just plug in quickly, you know, get a hold of a, a shelter that does already do it, you know, go on their Facebook page, find out who's managing that, talk to that person or who their marketing outreach person is. One thing I can tell you about the Harlingen team specifically is that they are young, they are motivated, and it was one of those things where they weren't gravitating to animal welfare. <laughs> it was really one person reached that was already working there, reached out to another Hispanic person and brought them in. And then they continued to pull people from their community, young people, that friends, neighbors. So really, that's how they got staff. It wasn't a you know, that they figured out some magic formula to post somewhere and all the Hispanics came in. And that's why they have, you know, so much young Hispanic talent. But yes, absolutely. Look at places like El Paso, look at places like Harlingen that are doing bilingual outreach that are, you know, really focusing on their people. I mean, Absolutely. They, they value their people. They value the talents that they bring to the team. And that motivation, that kind of positivity in a an environment that can be very, you know, depressive, very exhausting is what continues to drive these very young and very talented Latinas. I feel like we should all know this by now, Mia, but just in case, can we talk about the Google Translate rule? Taking your existing marketing materials, chucking them into Google Translate, it's a no-no, right? I mean, arguably better than nothing, but not something you want to do unless you can't avoid it, right? So help me understand why for people that are not familiar with the Google Translate rule. I'm not even sure if that is a rule, but I certainly just coined it. So help people understand what is the Google Translate rule? You know, it's better than nothing. You're right. What you're going to get, though, is sometimes when I use Google Translate, I will actually get two different, I, I will get two and usted in the same, in the same translation, right? So that's a no-no, right? You, you have to choose one or the other. So you have to know who you're speaking to and what are you going to have an informal or a formal way of addressing them. And Google Translate doesn't make that decision for you. I mean, like it does, it gives you whatever it wants to give you, right? In whatever manner. So it can be informal in one, formal in another, sometimes just formal. I don't know how exactly it decides that, but it's really, it's a guide. So I think, you know, some folks use it as a guide to translate if somebody sends them something, but let me give you an example. So we were getting some, 
some messages on Facebook and the gal receiving them was using Google Translate. And so it was a guide. It at least let her know kind of what kind of what he was thinking, like, okay, it's about adoption. But he made a spelling mistake when he was writing, right? Because you're, you know, how often do we do something and spell check just changes the word for us? And that's exactly what happened. It changed the word for him. And she couldn't figure out what it was that he wanted because every time she put it into translate, it just, it made no sense. And so by having, you know, a native person looking at it, oh, he forgot, you know, there's, he forgot the C in there. Therefore it changes the entire word and all he's looking for is an appointment, right? So it can just, it can be a guide, but depending on how things are entered or depending on how much content you have, if it's a lot of words, you can pretty much bet it. it's, it, it, a couple words might jump out at them, but the whole point might completely, you know, be glossed over because they have to be so focused on the words and the intent of the words. So I would use it as a guide, maybe even as a starting point, like putting it together and then giving it to a Spanish speaker and saying, hey, can you edit this, you know, and then they can make it, you know, right. They can make it, you know, where you can actually read it. You know, if you're approaching this, I think in a much more holistic way, you're going to be adding folks to your staff from across the community. So ideally, Google Translate is not even anything you think about um, because you've hired folks to work in marketing that can speak to different segments of the community authentically. Or, you know, maybe you're partnering with folks uh, from the Hispanic community, you're engaging with a, you know, Latino-owned marketing firm, for example, you know, and I know we often look to volunteers for this type of work, but I just want people to think a little bit before they do that, because I do think asking people of color to work for free is generally pretty perilous stuff. But like I say, I think if you're hiring with intention and building a diverse staff, you know, getting diverse voices on your board, you know, Google Translate, it's just never a thought. Too often, you might hire a Latina to be a director. And you have something that you need for the Spanish community. So instead of getting a volunteer or looking for a way to get it done, you will take that person away from their work. And actually, usually it's not a director. It's like a coordinator, right? But they've been hired for a specific thing. But now you want to take time from their work so that they can translate for you. And then they become like your translator, but that's not the job that they were hired to do. So be careful with that because that's a very fine line. My concern is that you hire someone for a job and then think, oh, that's great. She speaks Spanish, so she can translate all our stuff. And that can be very dangerous because what it does is make the person feel used not necessarily valued, right? And so I think it's important if you are onboarding someone that speaks Spanish, you know, is translation part of the job description? Also know that just because they speak Spanish doesn't mean that they've gone through Spanish grammar, that they know, you know, just like if I asked someone out of the blue, hey, I need you to write an article for the website. You speak English, right? The, the website's in English, so you can write that article. That's basically what you're doing. 
to someone that speaks Spanish. It's just having them do something that isn't in their wheelhouse, really. It's not what they signed up to do. So again, that's one thing. And then if you're if you have a major brand like we do, understanding that the brand has one voice and that should be a very, you know, that should be handled by a professional, not not by, you know, people here and there who are going to choose different words based on the language that they grew up in. But for shelters that are doing events, that are doing things that they need to communicate right away, you know, you can do that in any manner, in any Spanish, it will get the point across. And especially if you have a lot of things to communicate, you know, but try to be as consistent as possible. And we will have a glossary for ourselves at Best Friends on how we talk about specific things, right? How do we talk about community cats in Spanish? What are the words that we're going to use to really talk about TNR in Spanish? What are the words we're going to use to talk about spay and neuter and adoption? How are we going to approach those subjects? And we do have a glossary with our translation company so that we are all very consistent throughout all of our communications. So you can do that for your shelter or you can use our glossary. You know, we will be posting that and, you know, it gives you at least a guide on how to use the Spanish language about certain terms. We're way past time, by the way. I don't know if you've looked at a clock recently, but uh, I mean, I appreciate you staying on with me. Oh my gosh. Like Seriously, John, I think every time I talk to you, I'm like, Dude, I can talk to you for like three more hours. I know, I know. I'm going to have to edit this a lot. Uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back on. I mean, there's so much to this topic, but I, I want to know what, what's ahead for you. What's ahead for best friends with this work? Uh, and I'm just curious to get your take, you know, as an expert in this area, how are we doing at this point in 2021? Best friends, the movement, however you want to look at that. Are we on the right track? Yes. Is it going to happen as fast as we want? I don't know. Because it's going to take the village, right? It's going to take the industry. We are influential. Can we do it on our own? No, we need everyone to, you know, be a part of, be a part of this. I think my first, um, my vision, I guess, is to continue the dialogue, right? I do feel that we're starting from the right point about talking about adoption and connecting people to their shelter and letting them know you know, what resources are available, I think that's the best place to start. And then to give the tools to our partners to feel comfortable doing outreach. Some of them are doing great outreach. And it's just about spreading their good news to other shelter partners, right? And then other shelter partners need just different things. Maybe it's confidence, maybe it's Spanish language volunteer, but working with them to meet them where they are so that they can go into those communities and do the work. I think we are a conduit for, for the work that needs to be done, but it will be a lot of our support to our partners to get it done. And I think if we set the tone for what the conversation needs to be and how to flow that communication along and giving the resources of a Spanish website, resources and social media in Spanish, continuing to talk, continuing to give a place 
where they can feel comfortable to ask questions and provide those safe spaces. I think that's our job right now. And and then providing that support. But it will take it will take the village to move forward quickly. And we've got a lot of resources up on the podcast website to help you with your multilingual marketing and DEI efforts. Bestfriends.org slash podcast. Just click on the link for episode 82. Again, that's bestfriends.org slash podcast. The team behind this program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.